0: Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson
1: and Stephanie Berg. Hi Steph! Hi Janet! So today we get to do the third in our series on climate justice. We're just trying to lay out the basics for ourselves. We've already looked about how Vanuatu is leading the charge for an advisory opinion on states' responsibilities in the climate. That's via the International Court of Justice. And last month we looked at how ecocide is gradually making its way into national statute books as a criminal offence and especially what form it may get if it gets to the ICC, the International Criminal Court.
2: And today we get closer to the people who are often the driving force behind these new developments in international law, and those are the activists.
1: And when I first thought about this, I had in mind, you know, the students, the youth, the young people, the ones who will inherit the earth. But then I realised maybe I was being a bit closed minded in the sense of, you know, you could be all kinds of shapes and sizes and be an activist.
2: Yeah, surprising as it may seem to you, middle-aged women and even old women can also be
1: activists. This was brought home to me by the Klima the Senior Women for Climate Protection, which is a group made up of more than 2,000 elderly Swiss women. They're taking on the Swiss government at the European Court of Human Rights.
2: And the group whose members' age averages about a 73 argue that the lack of action on behalf of the Swiss government on climate change is having a serious effect on their health and therefore violates the European Convention of Human Rights. I guess those hot flashes are a lot hotter when a global warming is going on.
1: In oh, the, God, what a joke, <laughs> Stephanie, what a joke. <laughs> oh. In
2: the opening... Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably about to have those in a couple of years, so I... I uh, I will try not to make too much fun of it. In the opening statements to the court back in March, a lawyer representing the group, Jessica Seymour, articulated just how dire the situation had become for those women.
0: Members of the court, the applicants before you today are already suffering from the effects of climate change. As elderly women, the excessive and sustained high temperatures of increasingly frequent and severe heat waves pose an extremely serious threat not just to their health and well-being, but to their very existence. No one before this court disputes that heat kills, and that women over 65 are at real risk not only of severe physical and mental impairment from heat-induced illness,
1: but of death. The Klima had initially tried to bring a case in front of Swiss courts, uh, but they didn't get a straight answer there, and Seymour also touched on this in her opening statements.
0: The applicants are here because the Swiss courts refused to determine their claims, finding that there was still time before the Paris Agreement temperature thresholds were reached. And accordingly, the applicants could not yet claim their rights were affected. The Swiss courts ignored the real effect on the applicants today. To suggest that until one reaches the moment of catastrophe, one's rights are not affected, is to ignore the reality. It undermines the entire object and purpose of effective protection of convention rights.
1: So we also thought it would be great to get hold of Molly Quell, a friend of the podcast and a journalist for Courthouse News and occasional Associated Press um, person. And because she was there, and as she regularly is uh, in Strasbourg, and she was there at the hearing to hear these uh, Klimat women. So Molly, what did it look like? Um, was this kind of sea of grey faces, grey heads out uh, in the courtroom?
3: Yeah, there was um, there was quite a sea. It was, uh, it was an interesting day. I, I go to Strasbourg a lot, as you said, and um, this was the first time I sort of got one of these warning emails from the press office um, being like, you have to be there early, there's going to be a line, don't turn up if you're not accredited, blah, 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 blah. And I think I got there, I think the hearing started at like 930. I think they advised us to be there at 830. I think I was there at 615. And I think I was the 15th person in line at that point. Um, There was a lot of uh, public attendance, there was a lot of media attention, there was, you know, way more press than I think I've ever seen at the Strasbourg court. And yeah, the, the women came. There's obviously a big group of them. Lots of them brought, you know, sort of family or friends or uh, supporters. They had like banners, um, these little flower pins that they were they were wearing. It was very difficult to find an outlet and uh, very difficult to find a space to stand um, once you were like sort of inside the building, uh, which was, yeah, kind of impressive. I felt slightly bad for the French judge or French judge. He's not a French judge. He's a French mayor whose case was heard in the afternoon, which is also about climate change stuff because the crowd really diminished by the time he got his turn, which I thought was a little sad for him.
2: And you got a chance to spoke to Pia Hollenstein, who's a board member of the Klima Seniorinnen What did she have to say?
3: She, yeah, so she was is one of the people who is, um, yeah, kind of involved sort of in this case, has kind of been involved since the beginning. And what she told me was basically that her generation is the one who, sort of screwed up the climate and that she feels an obligation to fix this and that she sees her friends um, who are in their 70s and 80s feeling a lot of effects of climate change. That was one of the questions in the case, that these really hot summers are you know, worse for the elderly and particularly for women and that they really felt like they owed it um, to future generations to sort of fight this fight and kind of fight, force governments into making better decisions about climate change policy. She was a real like sort of firecracker. She brought along a little Swiss German to English dictionary and she kept stopping me about every five minutes to make sure that she was translating the right word. She really wanted me to like Make sure that, like, I was getting the correct noun or adjective that she wanted to use. So she was sort of breaking out her little pocket dictionary to kind of make sure that she was getting the right, uh, the exact right translation.
1: What's your impression, you know, from uh, your experience working at this court? How long will the process take? When will we expect some kind of decision from the judges?
3: I mean, as we know, and everyone who listens to this podcast knows, the wheels of international justice turn extremely slowly. This case is part of a bundle of cases. There are, there is the, the the women, there is this French mayor whose case was heard in the afternoon. There is a group of Portuguese, I think, primary, secondary school children um, whose hearings will be held in the fall. I suspect that the court is going to wait and rule on everything altogether. That seems to kind of be the prevailing theory for these climate change cases. And so that perhaps we will see something next year. I think there is a sense that there is some sort of, yeah, need for speed. And while the ECHR is frequently dragged as being a court where things just take absolutely forever um, to wind their way through, we have seen in recent years, um, particularly, for example, with like the Russia-Ukraine cases, that the court has sort of gotten it together to put things out a little bit quicker. So I think I'm somewhat optimistic that maybe we'll see something in 2024.
2: And there are all cases about governments not sticking to the agreements or not doing enough to stop climate change. That's also what we saw here in the Netherlands with the Ur- Urgenda case, uh, where the government was... Uh, for us to keep to the Paris Agreement, um, by a judge. How are these cases different? Is the Netherlands just like way ahead of the international curve? Are other European countries not as willing to keep to um, climate change, or, or how? You know, what's the difference between those cases here and, and uh, what we see arriving at the and Strasbourg Court?
3: Well, it's interesting because the Strasbourg court notoriously likes to rely on decisions from national courts, from high national courts, constitutional courts, supreme courts, that you see a lot of this in the history of for example gay rights where one or two or three member states have their high courts rule sort of in favor of something in favor of you know marriage or in favor of gay adoption something like this and then a couple of years later what you see is the ECHR kind of making a similar ruling and the ECHR now has two national court decisions one the Organda case as you mentioned from the Netherlands which said that the Dutch government has an obligation to sort of meet the Paris accord goals There's also a ruling from the German, I think, constitutional court. It's kind of similar, basically, that like the German government has an obligation to do things to sort of mitigate climate change. And those two cases were referenced very heavily at the ECHR, sort of saying that, like, yeah, if you make a decision in the other direction, you're sort of going against what is the trend amongst uh, national courts. And the ECHR, I think, doesn't like to see itself as kind of being out of lockstep of what is sort of like trending um, amongst its national courts. Um, this case, particularly regarding Switzerland, I mean, it would sort of oblige them to do more than they are doing now. Switzerland, the, the state itself argued, of course, that like it's doing enough. It's doing way more than other countries are. And it's such a small country that its contribution to global climate change is quite insignificant. But there were some more discussions, I think, in the French case about also like water rights issues um, and these sort of issues of like not having access to enough water in places and like erosion from coastal erosion from rising sea levels. And so we heard a bit more kind of about other things that we sort of see as not just specifically, you know, we have to keep the global temperature to a certain level, but also like all of the knock on effects of what happens when the temperatures rise So I think we'll see, I don't know, maybe something more broad than just, you know, you have to keep to the players accord. But also, I mean, I think it's quite possible that we will see something extremely narrow and that the court will ultimately decide that these decisions, you know, are better left to, you know, elected representatives and national governments to decide.
1: Well, thanks very much, Molly, for filling us in. And now we're going to carry on with some of the the other activists that we've been speaking to uh, about the other cases. So that issue of exactly what states' responsibilities are, I mean, it links back to what we mentioned at the top of the podcast, the request to the International Court of Justice for an advisory opinion, and that's come from Pacific Island states. Before we get into the motivations of those activists,
2: here is our little quick commercial break.
1: Hi, we're glad that you're enjoying our podcast.
2: We love making it and we do it for almost free. But it does cost us some time and money. So if you want to support us, you can do so for as little as a few dollars or euros a month and get even our bonus book club recordings via our Patreon page.
1: Or if you don't want to be tied down to that monthly payment, you can check out our tip jar over on the website and that's on the page How to Support Us where you can also make your donation.
2: We appreciate all the support we've gotten so far and we'll let you get back to the episode.
1: So when it comes to forcing or kind of laying out the responsibilities of states via the courts. Uh, This brings us to the other group that we've sort of touched on in the series, the Pacific Island Students fighting climate change. And they were the driving force behind the pressure to get all the states in the United Nations General Assembly to then agree to ask the International Court of Justice for an advisory opinion on climate change.
2: And this started in 2019, when 27 University of South Pacific law students banded together to persuade nations in the Pacific Islands Forum to bring the issue of climate change and human rights to the world court.
1: Yeah, I keep on trying to imagine myself as like, you're just a student, and you're doing this kind of exercise, uh, classroom exercise. And then, you know, years later, you see it actually happen in practice. I I just can't imagine how that feels. But just to kind of come back to them themselves, part of the reason why this movement sprung up specifically in the Pacific is because so many of the countries like Fiji, Tonga, Vanuatu are among the most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. So to understand the direct motivation, what drove the group to to really commit themselves to this cause, I got in touch with a couple of the members. First, you'll hear from Vishal Prasad, who's the campaign director for the students' organization. He told us a bit about his personal road into climate activism. Following that, you hear from Shwashwa Vaikuna, who's a campaigner for them and vice president of the group. And he gives a little bit of background on how the group kind of pulled together and what inspired them to start on the journey. When was the first time that you became conscious as somebody from the Pacific of climate change?
4: Let's see, about 10 or 11 that was my first time. Someone well, it was my class teacher. I remember when I mean, he got up in a, in the classroom and drew on the blackboard to explain to us the concept of greenhouse effect and what what is greenhouse effect and well, how is it how it is affecting the planet. And that was at that time an idea that was completely new to me because I was first as a young person introduced to this idea of a huge threat that's there out there to our planet, and then. After that, you don't get a sense of, okay, we we got this huge problem, but my teacher never explained to us what we're doing about it. And so it was just an exercise to explain that we have this huge problem on our hands. I I think that was one of the moments or the moment probably that started me on this journey to climate activism. Because as I said, at that point, no one told us there's a solution or this is what needs to be done. And fast forward, I'm, I was in year four, and now I am here in 2023. And I still think that we're in the same position. We have this big problem. We sort of know what the solution is, but we're not getting there somehow. And, and that is now the problem.
1: How did you come together? You've been, you've been kind of working together the last three or four years. How did that happen?
5: So as you start from the really beginning, uh, which is back in 2019, Uh, So in Vanuatu, where they have the main law campus, they offer a course there called uh, International Environmental Law. Basically what it is, it it just breaks down a bunch of legal uh, frameworks and conventions. And in this uh, IEL class in 2019, uh, we're a group of uh, 27 law students who just found themselves uh, inspired by... Uh, the course, the units in this course, and the lecturer, uh, and then uh, wanting to like have make genuine contributions to the fight against climate change. Uh, yeah, so then ju- they just found themselves creating Pacific Island students fighting climate change. Soon after, uh, just these very 27 compassionate students that uh, took it upon themselves in their free time to start to campaign for a uh, biggest campaign, the Advisor Opinion. Uh, growing up in the Pacific, you you have this unique perspective of what climate change is like, what, is, what it's generally like. And um, finding uh, the connection between what you're studying, what you're passionate about, law, and finding a solution in that to things that you experience on the daily uh, was what spoke to these students the most. And the fact that the law students, uh, a legal solution, was really the only thing they knew. was uh, There is some humor in there. But yeah, the, they, they were just genuinely passionate to find oh yes this is a connection between something I love uh, my home environment and something else I love my my academics and the law.
1: So from really humble beginnings in this classroom in the University of South Pacific all the way to the World Court it's really quite incredible. It is I
2: can't imagine that you think of this thing and then it finally happens it must have been amazing for them. As we covered in our previous episode, after persuading Vanuatu to take their case to the UN General Assembly, the resolution was unanimously voted through. And now the world's highest court will render an advisory opinion based on their legal question that the students asked. What is also quite remarkable is the level of involvement that they still have in the process. Usually when something like this reaches kind of the upper echelons, it gets handed over to a team of international lawyers and activists end up having very little say about what's going on. But Fischel told us that this hasn't really been the case, and he also gives us an idea of what outcomes they expect and what the consequences could be for Fiji, uh, specifically, if the climate action they are campaigning for doesn't come to fruition.
4: From the very beginning um, when we started this campaign we had two things that were at the very heart of the campaign and we wanted those two things to remain consistent all the way till the end of the campaign and the first was this mention of climate change and human rights, this nexus, this connection that climate change is impacting the rights of people. And this is a way to bring people back into the discussion about climate change and that at, at the forefront, people are losing out on so much because of climate change. And so people's right to life, education, water, sanitation, everything, the most basic human rights are being affected. So human rights was a very critical thing for us that we wanted this advisory opinion to touch on and de- deal with. And the second is that uh, the principle of intergenerational equity, that we want this not for current generations, but for future generations as well. And so we wanted the advisory opinion to have these two things. The youth campaign had these two at its core from the very beginning. If you look at the current draft of the legal resolution that's gone to the ICJ that was passed by the UN General Assembly, it has those themes at its core, um, those mention of human rights and the human rights treaties and conventions, and then that discussion on intergenerational, that this is about what the ICJ calls generations unborn. And so in that sense, we've been able to help ensure that the, what this this campaign was initially meant to be from the beginning maintains its Authenticity. There have been many actors. So as the campaign grew, so many different actors joined the campaign, and so the Pacific has um, always maintained that leadership. We've been part of steering the youth campaign, the, the alliance of 1,500 organizations that CSOs that joined the the campaign in in, in 2022.
1: When you look back and think about when you were trying to put this idea together, did you kind of imagine yourself in the Great Hall of Justice and doing it? Was that part of the thought process, or were you really more concentrating on the idea?
4: To be honest, no, i I, I did not think this far <laughs> because at that point, when you're trying to get a campaign off the ground, you are, of course, you have this vision of the long term. But it becomes also a daily basis of fighting the smaller battles that lead to eventually winning the war. And so you have milestones throughout the journey that we've been focused on. Getting one country to support this, okay, check. Then you get the Pacific behind us, okay, check. And ultimately these led to us coming to the great halls of justice. And so if you'd asked me back in 2020 when I joined the campaign if I had envisioned myself in The Hague on a day in June, And talking about how far the campaign has gone, I would say, no, I have not. But here we are, um, and here's where the campaign's brought us.
1: There's a number of outcomes that could come from the, the judges at the court. I mean, they could decide essentially to rule very narrowly out of this and to say something like, no, we don't think that states have to conform or only in this very narrow way. Or they could say, yeah, we do think states should do something about climate change, but in fact, there's no mechanism to force them to. As you say, there's quite a lot of risks in that. What would make you jump for joy in the end? What ruling will make you go, yes, we've succeeded? And what ruling would make you say, oh, no? We're going to have to try and find something else.
4: I think the power of the advisory, and the strength of the advisory opinion and, and how successful it is and what the outcome is, is going to be largely dependent upon the submissions that states make to the court. And that will have the biggest bearing on how the opinion shapes out. And, and that's been our focus at the moment right now, which is we're trying to convince states to A, present themselves before the court and participate in the proceedings, and then second advance the ideas and the arguments that the youth are making on in human rights and intergenerational equity to the court so that at the end of the day, we do have a powerful opinion. And that is proving quite a challenge because advisory opinions don't come very often. And climate change, this probably is one of the largest requests for an advisory because it's touching on such an expansive matter. And so historically, advisory opinions have not seen good state participation as well. And so we want this to be different. And so the first hurdle we have is convincing states, hey, you should participate. This is in your best interest to participate because it's dealing with such an important matter. And then second, once they have agreed, we then have the next task, which is to convince them, would you like to advance these ideas, these arguments, and these matters of law before the court so that you have the most progressive arguments relating to these themes?
1: But then, if states uh, participate and they say, let's say, quite a few states say, you know, it's a very bad thing, climate change, but we're not actually obliged, we think, under international law to do much, does that really help?
4: Well, we're hoping we don't come to that state. But we're counting on global South countries, countries that are at the front lines of climate change, to really push for those most progressive arguments, those lived realities, and those experiences to the court so that. This is something that is reality. And I think we just need to bring that reality to the court, to the, to the judges. And I think when, when you t- listen to these stories, when you listen to the realities, the heartache and the struggles that people go through, it makes you move. And, and when you combine that with sound re- legal reasoning and logic, that this campaign and, and this framing and this narrative on human rights and intergenerational equity tries to bring, we really do think that there can be an outcome that is going to be favourable and positive.
1: There's some kind of dramatic consequences possible for some places with climate change. And we've seen places already go through some hor- horrific things like huge hurricanes and typhoons. I mean, you know, huge devastation has already happened in Pacific Islands what are the potential consequences for fiji for you
4: well we know generally what the what the reports have predicted a world that's not that exceeds warming be, be beyond 1.5 is going to be catastrophic for all of us in fiji it's 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 a reality that we often don't talk about because it's so worrying and so bleak and disappointing but you have to have those conversations uh, visited one of the first villages that was relocated in the Pacific, uh, in, in Fiji. This was with the help of the government that this community was relocated. And the government has identified um, 42 to 43 more villages or communities that need to be moved in the immediate future because of the impacts of climate change. And so, so
1: these are the kind of villages which are in low-lying areas, yes, maybe on the shore. Most, and then yeah. what do they leave behind when they have to move?
4: Well, from the one village that I visited, um, which is an extremely heartbreaking experience to go see th- uh, what they have. I talked about this communal living idea the Pacific is known for. And when you go to a village, you have these, the idea of what a village is, is that you have people that are so close together. Everyone's living. Close by, you share everything, you have one source of livelihood, the sea mostly, and everyone is responsible for everyone else. And there's this great bond of of kinship, of love, and this the, the environment when you go to a village is just so heartwarming. But when I went to this village that had been relocated, what's left behind are deserted homes that have been that have trees and, and overgrown grass and all of these things battered down uh, houses, those those that have been because the sea is coming up so fast. Um, Some of them had to remove their houses altogether. So you'd see uh, foundation or the piles and posts of the house and some of the piles of cement uh, left behind. And then then, then you hear these stories about what's what used to be here, and the village headman to that one village I went to, he spoke of and he was telling us, this is where I grew up. This is the house my mother gave birth to, and this is where I was born. And and when you look and turn around, you don't see a house; you just see remains of a what used to be a house, and it's now overgrown. And 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 it's just so saddening because. And then he tells us, I learned. The ways of the sea here. I learned how to fish, how to k- keep my family going, how to swim, how to survive because we are fisher folk here. But now they have moved away from the sea. And he says, and he goes on to say that I would have wanted the same future for my children and for my uh, grandchildren to be able to grow in the same environment, the same skills, the same atmosphere that I had. But unfortunately, because they have been forced to leave, they can't they that's no longer possible and so and and perhaps one of the most um saddening things when i and that experience brought to me was the idea of ancient burial grounds that in the village when a person dies you also bury them in the village because they're still a part of the village and so many of these the the burial grounds of people the graves of people they also have been inundated by seawater or, or or the rising of sea level. And that is again another very sad reality because in, in the Pacific, that is also something we hold dear, our ancestors and our link to them. And so that's why they're always part of that village. But you can't relocate them, of course, and so that is a huge, huge loss. And when you see that reality, when you see those burial grounds, you can't do anything about them but just move on and leave them behind. Um, it's, It's just a very, very sad reality to face with.
1: It does sound
2: quite bleak when you listen to that.
1: Yeah, and another thing uh, just to mention that I did speak to Vishal about briefly is the Climate Justice Handbook, and we'll make sure we put a link to that in the uh, show notes. Because the students uh, who are now campaigners, essentially, they've put this together and it's aimed directly at individual states, It's trying to get them to join in this process at the ICJ or maybe to find other venues other court venues where they can work and so that campaign definitely doesn't stop just with having sort of landed it at the ICJ.
2: I'm sure it doesn't stop for the Klima Signorine either Uh, I ran into grandmothers and grandmas for climate change in Leiden the other day who were staging a protest at the city hall here so it is seniors for climate change is a big thing We'll look out for next subjects in the further series to understand the different elements that are going into climate justice legal work, maybe something with cases against corporate actors.
1: Yeah, I think that would be really interesting. And uh, just uh, off mic, when we were chatting to Molly Quell, she's mentioned, well, reminded us really that there's also a climate case at ITLOS, the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, that's uh, that's coming up. So, I think we've got quite a few different avenues that we can pursue. And I mean, to be honest, Steph, I still haven't even looked back at what's happened in Dutch kind of domestic courts properly and really understood how, how that works. So I'd be interested in asking those questions as well.
2: Yeah, I have some people in mind for that. So we definitely should, uh, we'll we'll get back on that uh, for another episode of our Echo Files.
1: Good. Well, I'm glad we agree that this is a subject that we uh, should pursue So speak uh, to you again soon. Yes, speak soon. Bye-bye. This was Asymmetrical
0: Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service. So please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.